0: Almost Awaken podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Real. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality. No nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, Or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode.
1: And there it is. Happy Thanksgiving, Britt. Did you have a good Thanksgiving?
2: I did have a good Thanksgiving, but like many moms, I am glad my kiddos are back in school and can take a breath here. Um, but we missed you while you were gone on your trip. And I do have to say our last episode that we did together, I did a solo episode while you were gone. But mm-hmm. the last episode we did together, where you just like really were so vulnerable with us. i We just while you were gone, we just got so much positive feedback of people who like, just felt really resonated with that episode. So you're you're just,
1: speaking of the four of us doing the, the four of us. Yeah. You're and and
2: you just really being open yeah. about, even though on this podcast, you talk about all the great things yeah. that happen on this side, that when we dig into that wound and put words to what happened, there was a lot of people who really resonated with that and pre- and didn't feel alone because you spoke words to it. And it was really powerful. And we just got a lot of positive response from that.
1: I did see while i was out of town i did see somebody created a TikTok with that clip and mm-hmm. uh, and so i reshared it or whatnot but yeah i think the goal is always in, in my mind you know this path of deconstructing and then reconstructing something it, it's so unexpected there's this there's this process that happens that on the front end you couldn't even imagine what's about to come ahead of you and i, I just I, I definitely feel for folks who are going through it and not really Knowing what's ahead and feeling kind of that despair that comes from letting go of what's uh, what is, um, yeah. and trying to help people not feel alone.
2: The line that stood out for me was was the one that was put on TikTok and the one that kind of had a mini viral moment, which was I thought that my friends and family would come with me, like I yeah. thought that they would be there with me, and I think kind of all of us, just who saw that moment or felt that moment, like, Ooh, that one, like, that's the pain is like, I, I thought that even now, like I have such close family and friends who have never asked, have never, you know, I'll publish a book. Don't, don't even mention it. And yet I show up to their kids' soccer games or I, whatever, you know, and you know, that, that, that still hurts. That still hurts. But speaking to it so that if you're in that place of like, why won't my family hear me? Um, know that, you know, you're not alone. And a lot of why they can't hear you is what we're going to talk about today on our episode today, which is biases. And I wanted to do this episode because you and I use phrases like confirmation bias. Like there's like, we use that word all the time. Right. Um, and so I wanted to dig into like, we use this word all the time, but I really want to dig into like what these biases are and some of them I'm familiar with and some of them, oh, I didn't know that had a name or I didn't even know, know I do that. And so I thought it'd be really fun to kind of dig into, you know, we've talked about biases on the surface level, but really dig into to biases today.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited. You know, having looked over your outline, you've, you've got some of these main ones kind of put down and instantly my mind goes to times where I've had that and times where I've tried to break that pattern. Um, And as I I was telling you off the air, there's no way to fix this completely. Even those of us who feel like we are almost awakened, uh, we are going to deal with these things plaguing us until our last breath to some extent. And I think we'll hit on some of the tools that help to uh, better prepare us to shed these things at least from time to time and do better at it, but this is something you have to be on red alert constantly when information is being presented to you that goes against what you currently think.
2: Yeah, we're. I learned this stuff I feel like far too late, like you know, how is it that I experience everything through my brain? And yet, like, just didn't understand just basic level of what my brain was doing until yeah. well, well into adulthood. <laughs> and it would have just helped me so much earlier in my journey.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: I want to start with, you know, in psychology, there's two main branches of biases, and that is conscious biases and unconscious biases. So conscious bias- biases are things that are intentional, like you're aware of your attitudes and the behaviors that come from it. So, So this can be a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if I, um, you know, Taylor Swift's album came out, but Weezer also had a new album out. I have a bias. It's one that I'm aware of that Weezer is better than Taylor Swift. (laughs) And so I listened to the Weezer one and I thought I was going to like it more. And I did. And that's not ultimate truth. That's a bias that I'm well aware of that it's just a bias. It's just me. It's just what I prefer. And I'm aware of it, and it it it's not necessarily good or bad. It's things that you're aware of, the, your little preferences, and I prefer this kind of food or whatever. Yeah, and like then, if I like Indian yeah.
1: food and somebody yeah. else likes, uh, you know, Mexican, and, and if I have a choice between the two, I'm going to try to nudge for the Indian food, and and I totally respect that other people are going to fall somewhere else
2: yeah and it's like it's you know not hills that you necessarily will die on but it's your it's your bias but Mm. you're aware of it you're aware if there's two dishes and i don't know anything about them except for it's mexican or indian i i have a bias that i'm gonna like this one better so on the other hand what we're really gonna dig into today is our unconscious biases which is all of our unintentional biases that we're not aware of and the reason that they have these and this little bit is like astounding to me is that our cognitive biases are our brain's attempt to simplify information processing, because we are getting 11 million tiny bits of information per second, but we can only process 40 of those 11 million bits of information per second coming from our environment and our bodies and everything. And so that's just... I mean, that's a big gap of things that are coming in and what we're able to process. And so our brain creates shortcuts. And uh, by digging into this, I learned that the research on our biases is very recent. We're talking about 1970s. So in recent memory, we had two psychologists, they're Israeli psychologists, Savertsky and Kahneman, who were digging into These kind of shortcuts and forcing people to make really quick decisions, like how they buy food or how they, you know, with limited time, how they make decisions. And then they were able to see, oh, these people are using these little shortcuts. And so there's about 150 biases that have been named and like categorized. We're still finding more. And so this is not like old history. We've known this for a thousand years. This is very recent. We're still categorizing biases that we're learning that we have. Um, And so today we're going to go through 15 that I just picked of like, oh, okay. Like I definitely see this in myself or this is really common. So I picked 15, but there's a lot more that we're not going to have time to go into. So the first one I wanted to do is the one that you, um, I think even you might've, taught me about this the first time, Bill, which is confirmation bias, which is the tendency to listen to information that confirms our existing beliefs. So this would be examples would be only paying attention to information about, you know, political issues, gun control, global warming, um, Uh, vaccines, whatever it is that confirms your beliefs, only following people on social media who share your beliefs, choosing news that supports your views, refusing to listen to the other side, not considering all of the facts. And it's just a shortcut that we have as early humans that we were rewarded by moving forward instead of being stuck in a place where we couldn't make a decision. So you use this one all the time. What comes up for you, Bill?
1: So first off, we live in a world where we need to be extra careful because social media, where we spend so much of our time, is got algorithms that are automatically feeding into our confirmation bias, right? So they whatever political beliefs you have, whatever uh, whatever uh, particular belief systems you fall into, whatever they are across the spectrum, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're going to feed you the information that you want to see because they want you to spend as much time on there as possible so that you come across the ads that they want you to see. And so now not only do you have to kind of, uh, buck up against your own brain and thinking, but you have to be constantly aware. And it's to the point where, uh, I have lots of family who think about the world. They think about the world differently than I do. And, um, I'm deeply aware that my chance of getting through to them on anything is much more difficult than it was, say, 10 years ago because mm. they are being constantly reassured uh, through the algorithms on social media of the things that they believe in. And so there's I'm such a small part of what they see every day that uh, the chances of me persuading them otherwise is going to be uh, near zero. The, the other thing, too, is that confirmation uh, bias affects us in lots of ways. And one way that really strikes me is that when I belonged to a certain particular faith system, when I would go and read that faith system scriptural canon, I would constantly have drawn out of the pages the things that reassured me that my system was right. It was years later, after, you know, kind of breaking wide open in deconstruction, that I went back to those those pages in red, for instance, the new Testament again, with the intention of setting my bias as much as possible aside and trying to read the new Testament with brand new eyes. And I was flabbergasted by what I missed Mm. for 20 years of reading it. Again, I'd read the new Testament, let's Mm -hmm. say seven, eight, nine, 10 times all the way through. I was flabbergasted by what I had missed and by what I saw that I didn't those other times through, that it really does take um, very much direct intention on your part. Whenever Whenever you believe something and somebody is trying or information comes across that is trying to persuade you to think about an issue differently, it really does help to take a pause and go, I want to consider this new information with brand new eyes. So that my confirmation bias doesn't get in the way.
2: Yeah. So that that brings up a couple of things for me. Back to the social media thing, unless you're right, that unless you're aware that you have this bias and aware of what social media does, then like the only way to f- fight it, even if you know all that, is you actually have to be intentional about following other people on social media in order to get some kind of a buy. So like there are people that I follow that like, I don't necessarily agree with everything that you say, but I want to know what's being said on the other side. And you have like a, you know, at least a rational voice. And so I'll follow that person. And it's it's again, it's going back to the you have to be intentional about doing that or your brain Plus, the social media will take over, and there's really nothing you can do about it. You know, all of us are, you know, a, a YouTube wormhole away from be- believing that the earth is flat. Like, it can happen to any of us. And so, we do have to be really intentional. The other thing that it brings out for me is it's almost like the first step of whatever enlightenment is. I'm not really sure how I would even define that, but it, whatever light enlightenment is, it seems like the first step of that is recognizing that how I see the world is not, maybe not exactly how the world is. That seems like the first real step because when you go to uh, stuff like Socrates or whatever, um, you know, the first step for Socrates is just know yourself, ask questions, know thyself. That was his first thing. When people asked him, you know, for advice, how do you become enlightened? Know thyself. And then you go back to even someone like Jesus. Jesus was constantly trying to get people to see outside the way that they usually see things. Can you see something else? Can you not judge people? because you're missing something in the way that you're seeing things. And I remember doing a new Testament class where it really talked about how Jesus was really trying to get people to see things differently than they were seeing them. And so there's multiple, you know, wisdom teachers or philosophy or whatever that says, this is really the first step um, to any kind of self-knowledge is realizing this bias that your brain is creating shortcuts about what you already know. To make yourself feel comfortable, and that yeah. you're missing so much when you do that,
1: yeah, it's it, it's a big reason why I got so interested in these debates between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris was because the they're 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 intelligent, articulate ideas, but they're kind of in disagreement with each other. And it gave me a chance to really go like, oh, Like, let me really expose myself to smart voices on both sides of controversial issues and try to understand. And and the reality is, you hit on this a couple of weeks ago, almost always when it's intelligent, articulate people who are listening to each other and still holding their perspectives, it often isn't a matter of one side's wrong and the other side's right. It's as you pointed out, people have different values. And when you understand how they come to the problem and why they value the things they do, suddenly you can realize like, oh, I can see why this side of the issue is important to that person and this side of the issue is important to that other person over there. Um, I think exposing yourself to a wide array of voices, it, it, to the extent where I've watched videos on flat earth, I've watched videos on we didn't land on the moon, only to go like, well, let me let, let me take their side seriously. Does this persuade me? Um, I think we ought to engage uh, other ideas. And lastly, I'll say this, Confirmation bias. I'm glad you went into this one first. I think confirmation bias is really a component of almost all the other biases as well. Like you hold a position or you're loyal to people, things or positions. um, and, And that plays out in all of these other biases.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it's really the first one that you have to recognize and tackle before you can kind of get more nuanced into, you know, the 150 others. Um, It's really the first one of just, oh, my brain is making shortcuts that I'm not even aware of. And like, maybe there's something bigger than what I'm seeing. That's like the first step to like growth. That's the first step to anything is just that realization. The other thing I wanted to mention before we move on is, so Brian McLaren did podcasts about this with Richard Rohr that are really interesting. um, If you want to dig into, you know, what he would say about all of this, but Richard Roy said something interesting about confirmation bias. He says that when he dies and he gets to talk to God, that he wants to ask God why he made it so easy for us to be delusional. And I thought that was a really interesting thing for Richard Roy to say, that like one of his questions for God is like, why make it so our brains are so easily delusional? And he mentioned people like with tears, he mentioned people that he loved in his life that he could tell were trapped inside their own brains, and we we all are, you know, trapped inside of our own brains. You can't see except for how you see things. Um, but we all know someone that we deeply love who is like really gone down a rabbit hole that we can't help you, we can't touch you, we can't save you. And he was really emotional about it. And um, so one of his questions for God is, "Why make our brains so easy to believe?" Be <laughs> delusional and eventually they kind of explained it through evolution and and why that would be but it was something that was on Richard Rohr's shelf which I found was really interesting you're muted Bill
1: sorry about that and Richard I, I listened to Richard Rohr and he was an, an important voice especially early on because he allowed me to kind of cling to some Christianity as I was deconstructing my particular faith system and then now I go back and I listen to Richard and I, I Again, I'm, my bias is now that that's, there's too much Christianity in it. And uh, it's interesting how all this plays out. I think, again, we, I think we just have to be open and be willing to sit with things that bump into us, such as ideas that are in disagreement with our being.
2: So good. All right, so we're gonna move on here to, the next one is hindsight bias. Mm which is a common cognitive bias that involves the tendency to see events, even random ones as more predictable than they are. It is also commonly referred to as the, I knew it all along phenomenon. And this is a real feeling that we have. And this plays into a lot of our discussion when you and I are trying to dig into things like um, horoscope or tarot or any kind of pattern Um, where you and I are always trying to separate out, like what is the hindsight bias here and what is the tool that's really actually um, helpful and has some science behind it? Um, but this one's really interesting. So examples of hindsight bias include insisting that you were, knew who was going to win a football game once the event was over, believing that you knew someone was going li- to win an election, saying that you knew you weren't going to win after you know, losing a coin toss, looking back on the ending the exam and thinking that you knew the answers to the questions that you missed. Um, There was this classic kind of psychology experiment where college students were asked to predict if Clarence Thomas would be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And prior to the vote, 58% of the students thought that Thomas would be confirmed. And then when they were polled again afterwards, 78% of the students said that they believed that Thomas would be confirmed. And so... um, you know, people would look back with hindsight and like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) But they actually, you know, the statistics showed that they didn't really, that they didn't. Um, The hindsight bias occurs because of our ability to misremember previous predictions, and also our tendency to view events as inevitable and to believe that we could have seen foreseen certain events it's it goes into our bias of we're in control when we're really in this world we're just really not right and so astrologers you know i've talked before about ronald reagan's shooting and the astrologer you know was asked about it and she said well you know i wasn't really looking but if you look at the cards you could see that it's totally obvious and it's like oh okay that's interesting um But yeah, all of this is just our ability to make patterns where patterns may not exist. Um, Especially the, I I knew it. I for sure knew it when maybe you did, but maybe you didn't.
1: Yeah, this this past weekend, I was in Mesquite, Nevada with some friends and we went into the casino for a little bit and we played craps, the four of us, me, my wife, and uh, the other couple. And uh, there's a thing in gambling where you the the new person who's never played the game before tends to have again it's it, it's a story we all tell and not that it's real but it's a story we all tell that the new roller at craps
2: beginner's does, luck
1: does well ah. and uh and i played the craps table because again i'm let me say it this way the the mathematical odds in craps is that if you play against the table everybody else at the table is playing a certain way generally if you play the opposite way your chances of winning are 0.08% better than if you play the standard way. So uh, my friend is a new roller. She's never played the game before. She's got the dice in her hands and I choose to play against the new roller uh, and I end up losing. I lose whatever, 100 bucks in 10 minutes or something. And um, when it's all said and done, I, I end up winning money and I end up going being ahead but they won hundreds of dollars. She walks away having won like 400 bucks. And in my head, I go, I should have known better. She's a new roller. She's she's going to have a good streak. Meanwhile, uh, my that brain is on the
2: classic. F- <laughs> yes.
1: And meanwhile, on the front end, my brain's telling me this is just a math problem. You're probably going to lose either way. The odds are in the house's favor, but the odds are less in the house's favor if you play it this way. And so the whole time walking away, pissed at the moment where I've lost some money, I am in my head doing the hind, uh, the hindsight bias where I'm like, I should have known it's a first roller. She's going to have good luck. I should have, I should have been uh, playing that way. Meanwhile, my logic on the front end was completely different. So hindsight bias is real and does plague us.
2: It's real. And we also get a little bit superstitious. We all do like that, that um, tendency to get superstitious even Um, I'll notice even little things that I'll do because it went well last time and it doesn't really matter, but I can see like, oh, that's a little superstition coming up in me if I'm really paying attention to myself. So it's all a part of like, to me, this one just really screams we're all on this planet spinning through space. We don't know why. I mean, There's so many just random things happening to us. And so we just, any way we can make a little pattern so we can feel like we're in control. Our brain really likes that, you know?
1: Yeah. And remember, I mean, we talked about this before. If you see patterns where they're not 200,000 years ago, and you think you see a predator coming out of the woods, you're rewarded by always being safer. Mm. If you don't see a pattern where there is one, Uh, you're going to die eventually 200,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so we have been evolutionarily programmed to see patterns. But notice when it comes to the hindsight bias, it's only after the event has occurred that you suddenly have more clarity that you think you should have had in the beginning.
2: Mm. I think another one that comes up now that you say that is is, um, sometimes I'll watch You know, I'll be on Facebook groups with ex-religious groups, and I just like to kind of see what's going on. But one that comes up a lot is something bad will happen after a person has deconstructed and maybe left a certain religion, Um, and then something bad will happen in their life. And the first thought that will come up really across the board, like this is not unusual, is um, I should have seen this coming this is because of this, right? This is because I left and I'm being punished or whatever the thing is. When really it's like a normal, like your car broke down. Like it's a normal thing that happens to humans every single day, right? Uh, But we'll want to, if if that pattern is in our brain of like, if you leave, bad things will happen and you leave, something bad happens. It's like that superstitious part of you just turns right back on again of like, oh, I'm not sure. And um, I see that a lot with people
1: you've been fed the stories, your brain will automatically pull those narratives out when needed.
2: Yeah, it'll see that it's prepped for that pattern. Mm -hmm. And so it'll show up later. So the next one I have, I don't have a lot to say about this. It just makes sense to me, but it's a complexity bias, which is the human brain prefers a simple lie to a complex truth. And I think the way that this most comes up with me is that when I'm in discussion with people, if I'm at a dinner group or a gathering or something, and someone is talking about some issue as if it's very simple, like why doesn't everybody see how simple this is? It's just my cue that... I don't really want to spend time in this conversation because unless, unless you're entering into a conversation with the idea it's complex, it's just not even a conversation I want to have anymore. Like I just don't have enough time. Like I'm too tired. (laughs) Like I don't have enough time. If you can't say it's complex, but here's what I think. That's great. I'll do that all day long and your views may be different and I'll dig in, but if you can't even say it's complex then I just I'm too tired. (laughs) I can't do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Notice that most issues where we as a people are deeply divided are messy, complex issues. And I'm always telling that to our audience here and other audiences where I speak Mm -hmm. that life is messy, life is complex. For people who don't want to get into the complexity the trouble is to understand this world, you really do have to listen to lots of voices, dive into lots of information and spend time and energy learning about the reality more fully than the idea of reality that you have. And so complexity bias for me is a big one because most folks who want to invo- to want to avoid complexity aren't willing to do the homework necessary to understand how messy and complex the world really is. Um, And so it ends up being, they want to live in a simple world. They want to live in a world where everything works a certain way and that there is a right and there is a wrong. There is a black, there is a white, and that's going to prevent them, as you're pointing out, it's going to prevent them from really learning and being willing to listen. So why waste the time? Um, But it's really going to prevent them from, you know, seeing through a lens less darkly anyway.
2: Yeah. And for, and not just for other people, but I think for me, this one really calls out some intellectual humility. So I'll notice that I may have an instinct to want to share my opinion in a in a group something. But if I'm really being aware of myself, if I'm if I'm really watching myself, um, you know, I'll have to admit, oh, this is this topic is more complex than i've had time to study and i probably shouldn't say anything i probably should just listen right and so that's one like for me where i need to work on this bias is because things are always more complex than than at first glance there's only a few things that i can speak like when we're talking about religious things or deconstructing, you, you and I can have listened to enough that we can handle these complex issues. But there are thousands of other subjects where I just have not invested the time. And so I should probably really be quiet because what I think is maybe simple is probably more complex than I'm realizing, but I just don't know what I don't know. And so this one really calls out for some intellectual humility, I feel like.
1: And this really shows up, you know, lots. Of, it shows up everywhere, but it, it really shows up in the religious world because it's easy for folks who don't want to get into the complexity of, of life or reality or an issue. It's easy to say, God said so, hence, I just have faith. I just lean into, you know, what what God wants me to do. And those kinds, that kind of articulation immediately kind of shows your cards that you're really not willing to consider that other folks who maybe are aware of more information, maybe aware of more perspectives, have something to even add to a conversation.
2: Right. It's just totally shuts it down.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: All right. So our next one, this one is I wanted to add because I really because this is one that we just deal with talking about spiritual and religious spaces, which is community bias. And this bias is it is very hard to see something that your group doesn't want you to see. And it's a form of social confirmation bias. So like you said, the first one is confirmation bias. And this is almost like a a, a subset of confirmation bias, which is uh, not just your brain, but the social group brain. And so it's this idea that um, Nazis aren't unique, right? We we become what we're, we interact with and community biases are very strong on our brains The, the one that comes to mind is the stanford prison experiment which was you know two weeks volunteers had to be a prisoner or a guard and they had certain uh qualities for the experiment but they had to shut down the fake prison in six days so like a week before the study was supposed to because the guards had become so sadistic at playing out their role And they started to feel like they were right, and they started to feel a lot of power. They even started to speak in a Southern accent, like really weird, wild stuff started to happen with this experiment, because just becoming a prisoner or becoming a guard, even though they were volunteer psychology students, um, just being in that environment changed them in ways that like got really scary and they had to shut down the experiment. So. So not only do we have our own brain confirmation bias, but also we have a group kind of brain that it's gonna be hard to see something that your group doesn't want you to see.
1: Yeah, this is the whole cliche of, you know, finding yourself in an echo chamber, um, group think. Uh, anytime you are surrounded, again, social media algorithms, anytime you are surrounded by the same voice that is yours, um these are folks that already agree with you and, and and part of it too is I come to it a little honestly. like I used to love the engagement and disagreement and sometimes now it's just tiring and exhausting and I don't want to put myself through that. So I don't I don't spend as much time or energy seeking out contradictory voices to argue because I just don't I don't find it as worthwhile as I did 10 years ago. and and so what I, I naturally am gonna find myself, in more of a group think or echo chamber. If I go onto my Facebook page, the folks that follow me or uh, are friends of mine on Facebook, they tend to be voices that are matching the things that I believe already. And so we really, again, have to work extremely hard to ensure that there are other wise voices around us who disagree with us so that we can always be open to new information and changing our mind.
2: Hmm. it's especially hard when there's something in the theology that says if you come across this bias like if you come across someone telling you that is a voice outside the box or think of it this way you know they've just been taken over by a demon or satan or um which is not just true you know of the religion we come from but it, there's you know lots of There's lots – in systems, there's lots of protections against those kind of biases being able to be penetrated, essentially, which makes it more difficult because there'll be little theological kind of guards to stop that from happening.
1: All myth systems, uh, especially high-demand fundamentalist myth systems, all myth systems have thought-stopping techniques which are meant to keep you inside an echo chamber. Right. Um, So you do have to be careful.
2: Okay. I'm really curious what you think about this one, because this one, this next one, I have mixed feelings about it. Okay. This one is the complementarity bias, which is that if people are nice to you, you'll be open to what they see and what they have to say. And if they aren't nice to you, you won't. And so here's, here's the reason I have a hard time with this with this one on the one hand I understand that if you want to get your point across you really have to sit across the table with something with someone and speak kind of human to human mm-hmm. and be kind and be vulnerable we've talked about how to have those conversations where you're leading with your humanity and your vulnerability because um, because of this bias we won't really listen to pain and scream and y- screaming and yelling uh, yeah. we have to meet each other as humans and you and I have talked about this yeah. but I also think that there There's another side to this, which is there's sometimes that I am aware of this bias that I probably should say this nicely, but you know, fuck that bias. We need to hear this, or this needs to be said, and it's not going to sound nice, and we need to get over it, and we need to get over feeling uncomfortable with they're not being very nice, you know. And the reason I have that response is because I remember there was a leader of our church, a female leader of our church, Elaine Dalton, who was talking about there was a women's um, protest about Trump and she was speaking and she had to kind of weave through the protest to get to whatever building she was going to. And she said, I watched those wo- I watched those women marching and yelling. And should I say behaving anything but unladylike and using language that was very unbefitting of Daughters of God. And I watched all of that take place. My heart just sunk. And I thought to myself, what if these woman- women were marching and calling the world for a return to virtue? And it was like she couldn't hear what these women were saying, especially these women who were protesting against Trump, she couldn't hear the message because she thought that they were acting unladylike or not very feminine, or they they used swear words or whatever it was. And so it's like, sometimes I want to be aware of this bias and sit across the table and really try to be as kind as possible. And then sometimes I feel like we just need to kind of like, I don't know, face this bias and feel uncomfortable because, or or else we... Don't listen to people who are angry, who have real reason to be angry. I mean, this is how we get stereotypes like calling black women angry and dramatic, because then we didn't have to hear about the plight of black women. We could just call them angry. Right. So I don't know. I'm I, I have mixed feelings on this one. What do you think?
1: So first off, if somebody is too complimentary to me, I can sense like, hey, you're kissing ass here. And I, hmm. I I, start, my my radar kind of goes off. But when folks are nice, again, use Richard Rohr as an example. He is so kind mm-hmm. that in the beginning, I just had no choice but to like sit and listen to this man who, who is opening my mind to new ideas when I was in an echo chamber in my specific system. And there were very few voices outside my system that I was willing to listen to. Um, I also find that I think this is sort of a form of ad hominem attack in that I, I tell myself in my brain, I'm free to disregard voices that are, and then you fill in the blank too nasty, too mean, too harsh, using bad language, um, uh, coming across too aggressive, uh, having too much disagreement in your tone. These are all forms of being able in my brain to disregard other voices, And we ought to, again, be very careful. I think there are boundaries and there are lines. So like all other things, this is messy and complex because I think there comes a point where if somebody's too much in my space and being too agitated, I want the boundary of being able to step away from that. And if I'm disregarding someone's opinion because they come on too strong or they use rough language, mm, that has nothing to do with the merit of their argument.
2: Right. And so I think this is a place, and I, we'll come across this again with other biases where we almost have to intentionally decide what we're doing with this bias, right? So if I know that people have this bias, but my my point is connection, okay, I'm going to show up as kind and as human as as possible because my my purpose is connection, right? Mm-hmm. But if my purpose is speaking truth to power, Like, like, I just need to like for myself, or maybe, you know, protecting someone that I love, maybe I don't care enough, maybe in that moment, yes, I'm aware of your bias, I'm, I'm aware that you can turn me off. But I'm still going to speak truth to power in this kind of holy anger kind of way. um, Because that is what I feel the moment calls for. And so I do think sometimes you have to intentionally decide, okay, there's a bias here what are we going to do about it? Because sometimes I'm not going to say that thing really nicely because, uh, that thing really needs to be said and people are getting hurt or whatever the thing is. Right.
1: Yeah. There is this argument, right? Like to win people over, you can't be seen as their enemy. They have so many walls and defense mechanisms in their brain that will push away your ideas if they perceive you as an adversary. And so when you talk about, um, uh, Engaging. I'm trying to think offhand what the name of the practice is, but it's um, when you're in in a conversation with an interlocutor and you're trying to c- talk to them about their beliefs. Um, Anthony Magnabosco is the is the face for this, but anyway, it, it's the idea that he presents conversations to people when he's trying to change their minds. He presents conversations. Uh, very kindly to them, he tries to come off as being their friend and having a friendly conversation. You have to do that if you're going to play the game of trying to win people over and get to the, give them just enough space to actually listen to you. You have to be kind and soft and be seen as putting an arm around them rather than uh, rather than being seen as an adversary. So this plays out all the time.
2: Mm, yeah, and I do think you have to be mindful, yeah, of what of what you want to do about it because. I don't think it's necessarily true that you always have to speak in especially for women, like unless you speak in this kind of soft snow white voice that that you know what you say matters. So I think sometimes we almost have to challenge the actual bias of like, I I have something to say and I'm angry because there's something really wrong here.
1: Uh, street epistemology was the word I was trying mm, to
2: Nice, nice. Yes. Oh yes, I know what you're talking about. Okay, so next one is contact bias, which is if you lack if you lack contact with someone, you won't see what they see. And so, two things came up for me, which was I I just feel like Gen Z is so much better at this because they see stories from around the world multiple times a day their whole lives, and so I I do think that they're better um, about this particular bias. But the interesting thing is like there's a direct correlation between they did a study where They studied white people who were raised white evangelical Protestants. And there was a direct correlation between how many gay people they personally knew and how they think God feels about homosexuality. And it was like one, two or three, like after three, the, the numbers didn't really change. But from one to three, you could almost guess what that person felt about homosexuality if you could get them to three people. Or if they were at two people, or if they knew one person, you could almost just guess every time what someone thought about homosexuality based on how many gay people that they actually had contact with, which I thought was fascinating. And you know this just from hearing people's stories is that your mind changes from hearing other people's stories.
1: Yeah. um, Again, we are evolutionarily programmed to other people. So the folks that are in our tribe, for our tribe to have survived 200,000 years ago, we had to be cohesive, collaborate, uh, work together, and we had to perceive other tribes as enemies. Because if we wrapped our arms around another tribe, then their stories would get intermingled with our stories, and we would lose our tradition. We would lose our uh, we would lose the things that made us special, right? And so, as time has gone on. We our brains are still doing this. Here we are in 2022. And what I, I remember, not too long ago, 15 years ago, sitting in my uh, grandfather's backyard or or my at my uncle's house, talking with members of my family and the things they thought about people of color, the things they thought about people who were uh, gay, uh, the things they thought about uh, women versus men, um, our brains are equipped to try to other everyone. Everyone is something less than human. I'm human, my family's human, my tribe is human. And then once I get beyond that circle, people become something less than human. And it allows us to not only treat them as less than, it allows us to disregard their ideas as not as of much value or not offering as near as important perspective as the folks that are inside those circles.
2: Yeah. And it's really interesting when we go real back in history, although we don't have to go back very far since this happens, but just how much um, violence is a part of that, right? Mm. We're able to be violent with people that we can't communicate with and yeah. who are othered in such a way that they're somehow less than human. And in a, across all history, there's never been a war where – um, The other, the language war happened first, right? The othering of the language always happens first. It precedes the violence. And even in like Disney videos, whenever they have, um, two groups of people fighting or even animals fighting, it's like, like, even in something like Lion King, like they'll eat zebras, but zebras don't talk in the movie, right? And so like some animals talk and some don't. And the ones that don't talk, like you'll have clips of them being eaten because like there's this weird thing that like, wait, I can't eat you if like we're talking the same language. There's something really kind of like wrong about that, it feels like. And so even in something as simple as Disney movies, you know, you'll have – you know, even even like the bad guy will always have like an English accent, but the good like Aladdin speaks American, but Jafar has like an English accent, like because something has to be other in order for me in order for you to be the bad guy, or in order for there to be violence, there has to be some othering, or else um, violence gets really hard to do when you yeah. really really deeply understand someone and speak the same language.
1: The the more we and the more we get to know someone. The more we respect their humanity, the more we make allowances for their humanity to show up different than ours.
2: Okay. Next one here, plugging along. This one is just, this one is something that we all have to fight all the time. I don't care like how enlightened you are. It's the conservative liberal bias and everyone will naturally kind of have their like biased space on that spectrum that you have to fight to kind of get other points of view. And sometimes you move a little bit, but your brain no matter who you are, will have like a natural space on that spectrum that feels right to you. And so liberals will see kind of the world through a nurturing parent window. So they'll believe like uh, people are genuinely good. You, they need to have more chances or opportunities or or help or love or whatever in order to, um, grow and be productive and conservatives see through a more strict father kind of window. And it can go back to really, really early parenting, um, where people are genuinely bad or can stray really easily. And so we need, we need order, we need structure or else, um, everybody's going to be murdering everybody else. And, um, or not necessarily murdering, but you know, everything's going to go into chaos if there's not tradition and order and structure and loyalty and all of that. And so liberals, um, will be really drawn in by arguments based on justice and compassion and conservatives will place a high value on those two, but also purity, loyalty, authority, and tradition. And a lot of this goes into how your early brain was formed as far as parenting. Um, because if your parents were more strict father, mother kind of parents, especially, and if you have religion wrapped up into that too, then it's like if it, the voice, it feels comforting, it feels right to have that point of view. And so our brains like to see how our party sees and we flock to those who see as we do. And so you almost have to notice like it's like talking with people, okay, where do you instantly kind of go on this spectrum? And then, you know, force yourself to see other points of view to see if your bias. Plays out, or if you are wrong or want to change your stance, or whatever. And it's something that you really have to always just kind of notice about yourself. So, my advice for myself that I try to do politically is not make a decision until I can argue from both sides equally. And if I can't do that, then I don't know enough to make a decision. And that's kind of like my self battle for how I battle this bias.
1: Mm. Uh, I mentioned this sort of earlier, you know, years and years ago, uh, back when I lived in Ohio, uh, before my grandfather and grandmother passed away, our family would get together at my grandpa's house every Friday, my aunts, my uncles, my dad was one of eight children. So all of his siblings, uh, all of us cousins, we'd get together. And there were all of these fun disagreements. And and the biggest one was always political. There were uh, There were Democrats, liberals on one side, conservatives, Republicans on the other. And uh, I just I remember specific moments where uh, some of these biases all came into play at once. It wasn't just the conservative liberal bias, but it was uh, certain groups that I felt like I belonged to going into the conversation, right? Like these are the five who argue this position every Friday, and these are the four that argue this position every Friday. And as I look back on that time, I was so adamant. I was listening to various talk show hosts that were on my side at the time. And uh, I was so adamant that I was right. And as years have gone by, uh, I've moved politically. Uh, I think I'm much more of a moderate and maybe a moderate liberal today. And I'm sort of ashamed of how absolute I was. Like I remember one time where my my uncle mentions i had made an argument about something and he had offered the perfect counterpoint and uh, which forced me to go like oh i guess there are exceptions to the rule but instead of going like oh i guess there are exceptions to the rule i just pushed through and continued to hold my stance right and uh, it took a long time of little bits and pieces of kind of changing here and changing there but if you are so adamant that whatever side you're on that the other side of the aisle is evil and that there are no good ideas on that side. I can guarantee you the problem is you.
2: Yeah, you've missed something. You're not seeing something. Yeah. Um, yeah, this one still comes up for me. I was, there's a couple of things that th- I think about. So I was more liberal when I was younger, and like you, um, became more moderate because I was able to see the other side more. Um, and it's interesting to me because religiously, we come from a background where uh, it was religiously and politically conservative. And so what happens when people leave is that all of a sudden these core values of purity, loyalty, authority, and tradition, now those values are painful values. Like authority is now like a painful value. You have some trauma around authority. Mm. You have some trauma around loyalty. You have some trauma around tradition. And so I'll see people leave not just Mormonism, but many conservative religious traditions and really swing over to the liberal side in an almost religious way. Right. Like whoever, like if you had a prophet, then like the liberal voice is the new prophet. And you see only things from that side because you've kind of had some pain around some of these conservative values. And so I do think sometimes we have to be aware of like those pendulum swings and be kind of big enough to see, um, to see both sides. Or else, like you say, we're really missing something. Yeah, totally. All right. Let's keep going through here. So next one is competency bias. This one is so ridiculous. Like this is the one is just makes me feel like humanity is just so dumb. So we are incompetent at knowing how incompetent or competent we are, so we may see less or more than we think, and our brains prefer to think of ourselves as above average. So to me, it is so ridiculous. This is one of the most ridiculous thing about things about human brains is that the less you know about something, the more you think you know. That is so ridiculous. <laughs> we are so dumb. And so I, I really felt that after finishing, I really felt that after finishing school and pulling out, I I stopped at dissertation and I pulled out of school and literally someone asked me, okay, like you went to theology school and you studied at a seminary, you've been studying religion for 20 years. What did you learn? Like, what do you think? What's, what's the theory? And I literally just had to say, I know nothing now. Like I've studied so much that I know that I know nothing. And like, I guess I paid whatever I paid for my degree to just finally accept like, oh, I know very little about ultimate reality and what God may or may not have to do with that. Um, But like earlier on when I was 18, I really, really thought I knew. And it's like the more I knew, the less I was sure that I knew something. And so it's almost like I went to school just to unlearn what I thought I knew because I just didn't know anything, but I didn't know it. I thought I was onto something.
1: Yeah. um, uh, This uh, to me, the reason I'm stammering is because there's kind of a double-edged sword here, which is for folks who are uber competent or uh, confident, I'm sorry. They're uber confident about ultimate reality. I I would guess that in, in the actual reality, there's a higher higher level of ignorance there, a higher level of naiveness. And that can also be used against my own arguments, right? Like I get into conversations with people who I know they're wrong and I know I'm right. And so I don't so I also don't want to see that exactly play out that way, because then I would have to acknowledge that maybe I'm the one who's wrong, and maybe it's me that's ignorant. This comes into play, I think, of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is kind of a phenomenon. I love psychology. It's a phenomenon that when you are not competent, same idea, when you're not competent in something, you tend to overestimate your skill. And so you'll see this play out on reality TV shows like um, America's Got Talent. When a person gets up there who doesn't have... high skill level at the thing they're doing. They're they're gonna do uh they're gonna sing, for instance, and their their voice just isn't that great. But when but they go into it thinking they're gonna nail this out of the park and they're deeply surprised and offended when at the end the judges not only discard their talent but mock them to some degree to get a, a laugh out of the audience. And and they don't get it because, you know, their mom reassured them that they could sing and their friend told them that they were really good at singing, but their exposure to voices that were willing to tell them hard truths were very limited. And so they thought they were good at something, but they turned out to be really not good at it at all. And this plays out all, I mean, I can't, I can't, I couldn't even number the, num- you know, the times in my life where I was sure I was right about something Only to find out I was completely ignorant and naive. Um, You really have to read and think and study and talk to and listen to a lot of different voices to get some sort of well rounded perspective on any particular issue. And as you point out, when you do that, you almost certainly will lose confidence in ultimate reality or in the specific. Surety of any one issue.
2: It's also interesting that we think that we're more attractive than other people would rate us. So, like, we all think we're at least a six, but some of us are fours, guys. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just not everybody can be a six. Or whatever the thing is. Like, I'm, you know, we feel like we're more um more smart than the average person. We feel like we're more competent than the average person. We feel like we're more attractive, you know, classically defined attractive than the average person. And um, so you actually have to, like you say, like this is one to be aware of so that you can have some intellectual humility that your brain may be bigging you up a little bit, but maybe it's more complex than than you think.
1: Yeah,
0: totally.
2: All right. This is similar, but this goes into what makes cults so alluring, and it's the confidence bias. And so um, this kind of relates to the competency bias too, which is we mistake confidence confidence of others for competence. So we are all vulnerable to the lies of confident people. Our brains prefer a confident lie to a hesitant truth. Our brains, like the person who says – I know, and I'm sure of it versus like, Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. There's a couple of things to consider. And so, um, our brains are kind of automatically drawn by the person who is sure because we're so unsure, you know, we're unsure about things and like, wow, they must be really competent if they're sure when really it's just, you know, it's a bias that we're being drug into. And you and I, I, I feel like sometimes, um, You can unlearn this one, especially if you've been duped by people who had a confident, you know, who had confidence and then you realized, oh, you're really not any more competent than I am. Um, So like if you if someone if you and I, Bill, were at a party and someone walked in who was 100 percent sure of the truth, you and I would be skeptical. Like we would not be drawn in that bias because we've been hurt by that bias before almost. You know what I mean? So it's like our our guard would be up.
1: Um, totally sorry. I was in the comments because I can't exactly figure out what's going on there, and I'm not exactly feeling confident that what's going on over there is healthy. Mm. So I just put somebody in a timeout for a moment. Mm. Um, this idea that you know, you, you you, got it written here can we're on conspiracy bias when we feel shame, we're vulnerable to stories that cast us as victims? Yes, we anytime someone assures sorry, we're us,
2: on, we're on confidence. So, uh, we're drawn in by people who are confident. Sorry
1: about that. You got that. That's the next one. Yep. Um,
2: so I was just talking about how. Isn't this,
1: isn't this the same like, one? Okay. Go, no, no. Go ahead.
2: So I was talking about if, yeah, if you and I were at a, that this is when I feel like I have some, some, some things are like, some biases are like, yes, I still do this all the time. And some biases, I feel like, you know what? I've made some headway. Where I feel like I have a guard up when this or like I'm aware of this bias coming up. So for you and me, I do feel like if someone were to come into a party and say, "Um, I am 100% sure of I'm right about this, you and I would be skeptical about that person because we're no longer as. vulnerable to the lies of confident people, because we know they're probably not any more competent than me. And if they're a hundred percent sure that they know something, they're probably ignorant about something. Like we've kind of unlearned this.
1: Yeah. Isn't it strange, right? The folk, again, this first half of life versus second half of life, the way in which we approach it and think about things when people were deeply confident on the first half of life, I didn't know any better. I was just a kid. I was just a young adult. I was in college. I went to school. I, I'm listening to people who have got degrees in things, and I am and I don't know how the world works exactly, so I'm dependent on other people to tell me how it works. And and then I get to the second half of life where I realize that, oh, there are a lot of people in this world who are confident about things that don't know jack squat. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so suddenly you begin to develop the tools that can see through that. Mm -hmm. But I can totally get why that is something that is alluring to uh, folks who uh, are still in a kind of a binary thinking paradigm or are very young and uh, ignorant and naive. And I use that when I say those words in today's episodes, I mean those kindly. Like we can't, we can't You mean those as
2: like us too. Like we're, yeah. Like you can't
1: (laughs) possibly be responsible to know what we don't know. Right. And so we all have to take time to learn things.
2: Yeah. This is yeah. one I feel like, yeah, that I've made some headway on and I can spot it and I cannot be drug into it because I've yeah. learned, yeah, oh, this person is really not as competent as maybe their confidence suggests, right? Yeah. So the next one is conspiracy bias. When we feel shame, we are vulnerable to stories that cast us as the victims of an evil conspiracy by some enemy others. So our brains are... You know, we're not seeing ultimate reality. Our brains are kind of creating stories as we're seeing them. And our brains do this thing that we're either the hero or we're the victim, but we're never the villain, right? And so conspiracy theories will touch on a lot of these biases, conspiracy theories, I mean, simplicity over complexity, confidence of cult leaders, there's a lot of biases that are going on with conspiracy theories, community bias, all of that. But another one is that you're the victim of the bad guys. And fighting back is like, like being the hero, when you're fighting back, you're the hero. And so you'll see this with people who are Involved in all kinds of conspiracies and people would kind of push back on them online and they'll say, I'm the hero. I'm you guys are all sheep or you guys are all lost or you guys are are not seeing anything. I'm the hero fighting back here. And um, it's honestly a miracle if you break out of a conspiracy theory, because it's like all of our brain biases put together, which is what makes conspiracy theories and rabbit holes like so strong. It's because reality is kind of a socially constructed illusion at some level. And so, yeah, the, the conspiracy bias is that we're really vulnerable to stories that means that we're the victim or we're the hero, but we're never nobody and we're never the villain.
1: Yeah, it's, it's important to us that our lives have meaning. It's important to us that we are on the right side of things. It's important to us that we're, we're on the winning team. And religion plays into this a bunch. It's, it's how this bias uh, really shows itself is that anytime that um, someone is offering us a way to be more special than others, uh we we are drawn to that and where our brains are taught to give that more weight and merit than it really deserves
2: right and so i can't help but think of mormonism here that that you're either the hero because you're saving everyone and our missionaries and our message is going to save everyone or you're the victim like when the world is pushing back at you or um you know people will you know universities will cancel things because byu you know, LGBT things. And if they're not the hero, they instantly become, we're the victim, we're the victims of um, attacks on religious freedom. Right. And so it's, it'll swing back between those two things. We're the heroes, we're the victims, we're the heroes, you're the victims. And it's just what our brains do. So it makes total sense to me that a social group would act that way, because you're never the villain and you're never nothing you're yeah. the hero or you're the victim of everybody else not letting you be the hero right
1: yeah and it and it plays out you know for the folks who believe in a flat earth for the folks who believe that we didn't land on the moon there's something about being part of this small elite group that knows the truth about something um and so folks are drawn to conspiracies because it puts them in an elect group, it allows them to be in the small minority that has found the truth. It isn't blinded by the um, by the by the deception that the rest of the world is falling for.
2: We just had um, we, we've had some comments on here. some yeah. of some of them are great and some of them are not great, but the the recent one before I I uh, blocked this user was that we're not real Christians. So are yeah. you gonna is, are you gonna be okay with that insult to Bill that you're not a real Christian?
1: Uh, who who decides? That's a I'm, no I'm checking Scotsman.
2: in. You know, I'm checking in on your feelings there because it doesn't
1: bother think, me at all. Other I think than that was meant to hurt. hurt.
2: Yeah, I think that was yeah. meant to hurt. But that it really got
1: it. Really got me.
2: That didn't quite maybe land as as he was hoping to land with us. The no
1: true Scotsman fallacy.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. So we're not true. I've been called much worse things than I'm not. Than I'm not a true Christian.
1: <laughs> Only true Christians know who the true Christians are.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. So we're going to move on, you know, Christian or not here, we're going to move on with our biases. Um, So this one is the uh, comfort bias, or it's sometimes called complacency bias or convenience bias. It's all the same meaning, which is that our brains welcome data that allows us to relax and be happy and rejects data that requires us to do work or to change. And this is one... um, for me that i can definitely say like oh yep i'm still here i'm still working on this one doing quote unquote the work of whatever it is is always hard and finding that the answer requires us to change will always be met from with resistance from us and you just kind of have to expect it like it's never going to feel good to have that hard conversation it's it's something like oh i recognize my resistance and i'm going to go forward anyway um but that resistance is always going to be there. You you just have to kind of expect that your brain is going to throw a little fit, and you're going to move forward anyway if you're aware that that's what brains do.
1: Yeah, your your brain is um, always going to find an easier path in maintaining a comfortable belief that you already have. And so this is where this whole cognitive dissonance comes in. That when you learn something new. And that new thing runs counter to the beliefs that you currently have. And those comfortable current beliefs are important to you and they are part of your identity. Um, Your brain is going to try so hard to get you to ignore the difficult data and to stick with the belief you already have that it takes significantly more work to open your mind to new information and to make a space that if the new information is in fact true, that you allow room to actually change your belief.
2: Mm-hmm. The the thing that came up isn't from really my life, but it's a friend of mine who um, this friend and her husband are in couples counseling, um, which is great. You go sometimes, I'll go sometimes. It's really great for marriages. And um, this, this husband was starting to have a really hard time going to the couple's counseling because it was like every time he went, he'd learn another kind of aspect of patriarchy that he needed to unpack and do some work in order to move the marriage from a patriarchy relationship to a partnership relationship. And so every time he went, it was like his brain was having a really great time being comfortable, like watching TV all day Sunday while she made dinner. And then he goes and he learns about, oh, like while I've been doing this, you've been doing all this, or this is the mental load you've been holding. And in order to make this marriage work, I have to do this kind of work. And it's like, it, I can feel, I feel like it can sometimes be hard, especially for men who really do want to unpack patriarchy and become good partners but everything they learn about patriarchy is hard for their brains because it requires work and like it's hard it's hard for all of us and that was one that came up that's what came up for me is just all the people who realize that unpacking this is going to be work but they do it anyway
1: yeah um i was listening to a podcast i mentioned this off the air to you i was listening to a podcast 10 Percent better what's the name of the host again uh, Dan Harris. Dan Harris. ABC, and he Dan was, Harris. He was interviewing uh, a woman on biases, and uh, they were talking about how when you're in a privileged segment of society, so whether you're male, you're white, you're cisgender, heterosexual, whatever it is, there's a comfort level that you haven't had to get uncomfortable yet. You haven't had to deal with the fact that if you're a black man – Driving down the road is always risky. And and a a black male has to constantly live with uh, in every moment where they are in public of the risk of things happening and stuff going south that they're not even expecting. For instance, if a cop pulls them over. And and so when you're in a privileged segment of society, you keep wanting to maintain that privilege, to stay away from that discomfort. And you haven't yet had to learn the lesson of sitting with things being um, not only difficult, but things catching you off guard and and surprising you and being negative. Hmm. Uh, Not to the degree that other folks who are in marginalized sections of society have. And so it's really easy to want to work hard at maintaining that comfort um, and not really realize that large segments of society that are different than you have had to do something else and deal with it and engage it and sit with it and work through it, Um, it really is privileged to be able to avoid it.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of this great thought experiment that um, where you take a group of people and you have them, okay, like you're in charge of uh, so this would be called college students, and they were kind of in, put in charge of fixing society. And so they'd make little, you know, I want to change education this way, or I want to make these changes. And then they had them do that experiment again. But this time they had to make society structure society, but they wouldn't know what they would be in this life until they got there. So you don't know while you're designing society, if you're a child or a woman or black or white or poor or disabled, you don't know it's a roll of the dice. And so once they removed that, um, privileged that, that they're trying to protect, they would, restructure society totally differently right they would raise the bottom level so that even if you were really really unlucky with whatever cards you were dealt in life it wouldn't be too bad and so it's interesting that their structuring of society was different when they took away you don't know what you're gonna what privileges you're gonna be born into or what um struggles you're going to be born into and so it reveals how much we're trying to protect our privilege just by having people do this kind of thought experiment totally all right so next one is cash bias it is very hard to see anything that interferes with our way of making a living our brains are wired to see within the framework of our economy and see what helps us make make money um And this one makes sense to me. I can count quite a few um, Mormons that I know that have faith crisis really knocking on their door, but can't face it because they are the neighborhood's favorite realtor. And it's too much to even consider what that would do, right? And so it stays on the shelf maybe longer. And I have a great amount of respect for people who go through faith crisis and it forces them to change jobs because when that happens, I know that they... fought through a bias that I didn't have to go through. Like they fought through something in their brains that I didn't have to experiment or experience. And uh, someone who's a listener of this podcast um, was a seminary president. And so his entire income was based on this X being true. And so when it becomes not true, having to face that means, you know, it's not transferable to another, he can't move jobs to another place. Like it's all of his credentials were in this particular theology, which doesn't move to other places. And so I have great respect for people who lost more than I did by facing some of the questions that you and I, you know, have talked about before. Um, Because I know that there was a lot more biases that they had to break through in order to get there. And I have a lot of respect for those people.
1: Yeah, you know, I've I've read books and heard podcasts numerous times about the large number of Christian ministers, pastors, et cetera,
0: mm-hmm. who
1: who essentially, because of this bias, because they would lose their livelihood, either sit in doubt, maintaining their job and and not speaking up, or and many of them report that they went years and years trying to pretend that their old beliefs were still true um not really wanting to confront that and in the system that we come from there are voices that seem intelligent seem informed but they don't they also tend to not really want to go the full distance of talking about these tough questions in in their you know kind of exposing the full breadth and scope of them right they they tend to want to stay away from getting painted into a corner where they have to acknowledge that th- deep parts of their system don't add up. Um, you're right. Like any time that our livelihood is at stake, and it's it's maybe even bigger than this. I, I was talking to somebody the other day where we were saying like, look, if, if my faith system came to me and said, hey, Bill, we'll pay you $10 million to just go off the air and not talk anymore. Um, if I'm honest, I think I might in fact do that. Um, I might, in fact, uh, not because money would provide such for my family, right? Um, And so there's some level of like, we all have uh, lines of where our integrity allows us to go or where we wouldn't allow it to go. And cash bias, I think, is real. If you said like, look, your wife and your children will be hungry, or you can pretend that your current beliefs are true, even if they're not. Um, things like that. I I think that plays a part. It plays a role.
2: Mm, Yeah, definitely. All right. Three more and then we'll wrap up here. So So the next one is the halo effect, which is the tendency for an initial impression of a person to influence what we think of them overall. It's also known as the physical attractiveness stereotype or the what is beautiful is good principle. And so this is again, one that as a woman, I have mixed feelings about. So we will think that people who are good looking are also smarter, kinder and funnier than they actually maybe are, or then less attractive people. And we also believe that products that are marketed by attractive people are also more valuable um, and then we'll think that a political candidate who is confident or attractive uh, must also be intelligent and competent. That goes back to um, when JFK was um, debating Nixon and people who listened to that debate thought that Nixon had won. But the people who watched it and you know, JFK is this younger and more handsome guy, he wasn't sweating under the lights as much. And they thought that he won because you're looking at it and were very, very affected by um, our first in, first impressions of people, especially if they're attractive or not, and so this is one that, as a woman, again, I feel like I have to be an intentional about. So if I'm going to a job interview, I would do my hair, I would um, have makeup on, I would dress really nice because. I would want to use this halo effect to my advantage, essentially, like I know that your first impression of me is going to be better if I have some mascara on versus if I wear, I'm wearing sweatpants like I usually do or whatever. And then there's sometimes as a woman where I say, you know, I, I know that people have this bias, but uh, I want to... Uh, be able to walk in out into the world without wearing makeup and wearing I wear a hoodie almost every time we talk because this is what's comfortable for me or um, I want to be able to not be ashamed of my age I don't want to play into this like I have to try to look like I'm 18 um, because I you know I have moral issues with that and so again this is one of those biases where I feel like Especially as women, you have to be really intentional about when do you want to, um, play into this bias because it's helpful in whatever way. And when do you want to say, "No, if I'm still a valid human, just because I'm not wearing makeup and that's, that's going to be okay. And I'm not going to play into that so much.
1: Um, I don't remember her name, Britt. Maybe you'll remember this. This was on like America's Got Talent or I'm trying to think what the, um. What the, what the other show was that's similar to that, but I think her first name was Susan and she was like a middle-aged woman. She was heavier set.
2: Susan Boyle, the the singer. Mm -hmm. You
1: nailed it. Mm -hmm. So Susan Boyle stands up on stage and she looks amazing.
2: Yeah. yeah. Amazing singer.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and so she stands up and everyone in that crowd had already made a judgment based on her appearance. Mm -hmm. And you could tell it, you could tell the moment she stood on stage, The the way the crowd reacted versus how they react to every other person who stands on the stage, they had already made a judgment that this was going to be one of those people who couldn't sing Mm -hmm. and would be laughed at off the stage. And the moment she started to sing, the crowd erupted because they were dealing with the juxtaposition of their judgment about appearance with the voice. It was a
2: surprise. Mm -hmm. It was.
1: Mm -hmm. And only surprising because of the judgment people made, right? Right. So it's kind of that halo effect where the crowd was ready to perceive her as not having any talent. Mm -hmm. And when she sang, they were so caught off guard with the difference between what their expectations were versus the reality of her voice that they were, uh, they cheered even louder than they would have if it was a beautiful model had stood up and had the same voice. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, The halo effect deeply affects who we vote for in elections. It is uh, deeply influential for who we tend to trust, who we tend to see as um, most likely to commit a crime versus most likely to obey the law. Um, It it plays out in almost every personal interaction between two or more people. Mm
2: -hmm. And so I think sometimes, yeah, especially as women, you have to be really intentional as far as how much you want to play into that and how much you want to fight that because those are you know, you have to, you have to choose what you want to do with that. If I was a newscaster and that was like my, my main, my main ambition in life was to be um, a newswoman. That's a very visual job. You would have to invest a little bit more time into the upkeep that, you, you know, you would be required to as a woman. And so that would be an intentional choice for that kind of job and, or but you also don't want to be so sucked into it that you can't leave the house unless you spend an hour getting ready because that's time lost, right? That's time, that's time that you'll never get back. And so this one I feel like is really hard for women because we have to sometimes play with this bias. We know people have this bias, so we have to play into it. But then sometimes we also have to say, you know, I'm 40 years old and I'm not gonna try to look like I'm 20 because that's stupid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
2: All right. So the next one is self serving bias, which is the tendency for people to give themselves credit for successes but lay the blame for failures on outside causes. So if you do well on a project, you probably assume that it's because you worked out hard. But if things turn out badly, you are more likely to blame it on circumstances or bad luck. So examples of this, attributing good grades to being smart or studying hard, but if you get bad grades, you know, it's the teacher hates me or whatever, believing that your athletic performance is due to practice and hard work when, you know, maybe genetics had a lot to do with it or whatever. Um, thinking you got the job because of your merits, and so this one just goes into we think that for us it's because of our talent and hard work. But it, when it goes badly, it's 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 bad luck or or circumstances. The one the thing that comes to mind for me is when my husband is driving, he will he has a I wouldn't say road rage, but he gets annoyed with other drivers, right? He gets annoyed, but it'll happen so many times where he'll turn around to deal with a kid in the back. And so he'll slow down or go off this to the side a little bit and it's fine. But if someone else does it, it's like the worst. And it's like, they probably just had the same circumstances as you. Um, but you see it different if it's for you versus other people.
1: Yeah. I grew up, I grew up playing sports, um, baseball primarily and I was on good teams. There had teams that we, we won the championship in multiple different, uh, levels of baseball play. And I, I remember very much like games that we lost. It was so easy for me to go like, Oh yeah, that was, you know, the right fielder's fault. And then in games that we won, it was like, Oh yeah, I had that double in the fifth inning that knocked in two runs. And, um, we we don't want to be the, the reason things don't work. We don't want to be the reason that things fail. And so it's much easier to put the blame when things go wrong on someone else and to take the credit when things go right. And uh, this, this is one that we don't have to look anywhere else other than the mirror and own our own bias here. And accept that, for instance, in a team sport, it is a sport, team sport. It's a collective effort, win or loss, by everyone. If if a team loses, yes, there may be a player or two that stands out, but there were fifty other plays that someone, something different could have happened, and uh, we ought to notice how often we're willing to uh, take credit for successes and pass the blame and failures.
2: Definitely. Okay, last one, guys. We've had a great audience. Listen, we've been going almost an hour and a half. So this is such good stuff. And thank you, the audience, for staying with us for this episode. It's our last one. the donations, too. And donation. Thank you so much. Um, And the last one I have is anchoring bias. This one's really interesting to me. This one makes sense. Um, for a lot of the social direction work that, I, uh, sorry, spiritual direction work that I do. So the anchoring bias is that we hang on to the first piece of knowledge that we get. So if you see a t-shirt that costs a thousand dollars, and then you see a second one that costs a hundred dollars, you'll see that the second shirt is like oh it's on sale right it's it's great but if you were to go if all the shirts were $5 and you saw that first and then this shirt was $100 then you would think oh this shirt is really expensive and this this acts for bigger ideas too so if mormonism or fundamental christianity or jehovah's witnesses if that is your first set of knowledge then it acts as your cognitive anchor to all other things, which makes it harder to deconstruct. And so also what happens is if you lose that anchor, it's very, very debilitating to your brain. Like whatever the those first pieces of knowledge were like my parents love me and this is true, this church is true, or whatever those really foundational anchoring truths were that you learned first. When those go down, it's very, very hard and uncomfortable for our brains and we'll want to fill it with kind of the first thing that feels safe, which is why when you first leave a cult, you're at the most high risk for joining another cult, whether it be an exercise cult or a political cult or whatever, because it's so, because we need kind of that anchor that attaches to all of the things and how we take in information. We kind of compare it to our anchored truths in our brains. So that's very fascinating to me. And it it makes sense based on seeing people leave religion and kind of like that hollow, um, experience you can have when you lose some of those anchored truths and how uncomfortable that is for people.
0: Yeah.
1: And this can happen uh, on a a level that's accidental. So for instance, let's say you're in Facebook marketplace and you're looking for a car and somebody's got one for sale. If you say, how much is this? And they respond back and they accidentally hit the three instead of the two and type in 30,000 and send it to you. And then they come back and go, oh, I'm really sorry about that. It's only 20,000. You're like, oh, man, that's that's a great deal. Without having looked up the book value, without having done the research, your brain will automatically uh, be pleasantly thinking like this is a great deal that's been given to you. Um, and, and if somebody were to do the opposite and type in accidentally 10,000 only to tell you now it's twenty. You, you, the, the emotion in you is going to have a more negative feel, even though the price was 20,000 from the beginning. And it's simply an accidental bump of the button uh, on both, on both sides of that uh, uh, example. So you, you'd have to be careful of, you have to be careful of, uh, and this plays out too. I think your point of this, you plays out too. If you, if you talk to somebody first, whoever gets to you first and uh, shares their, reality with you. So if you, for instance, if you join a religion when you're young and that's the faith you grew up in, that will uh, have deep influence on how you perceive every piece of information that is juxtaposed against that. Yes. Versus if you grew up in an atheist home and uh, are now confronted with different ideals than that, your atheist upbringing will have deep influence over what you're willing to accept or not accept Going forward, good or bad, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah good
2: or bad. You're like biased. As an atheist, you'll have natural skepticism because yeah. of that anchoring kind of truth. But we have a, a listener who said that you know, being raised with the church is through the church is true and my family loves me and those always being tied together that when the church became not true, then it kind of messed with that with that anchored truth, which is my family loves me and we're an yeah. eternal family and whatever. And so sometimes when you lose an anchored truth it has untold ramifications to all the other truths and essentially the kind of reality that you've constructed in your brain if you lose one of those really anchored truths because our brain holds on to the first thing and then compares all information to kind of that first card you were given whether it be something little like looking at a shirt um, or something really big, like I know that the church is true and that we're an eternal family because of it, and so we love each other. Um, no matter what it is, like our brain kind of clings to whatever that first truth is, and then we compare everything else against that one.
0: yeah, yep,
2: all right. So that was fifteen biases. There's about one hundred and fifty total that you can look through online, and we are still discovering more. Um, it's very hard to convince other people of our biases. It's almost work that we have to kind of talk about, but you have to do for yourself. I'm still learning about biases. The most recent one that I came across is I've always been kind of like a grammar and spelling Nazi, um, where there's like a right way to say something or a right way to spell something. And, maybe some of that is wanting to preserve the English language, but I didn't see it until someone called out that it's like a form of classism. Like I've had a lot of education and specific education. Right. And so to learn that, you know, Eubonics or other kinds of um, American languages are just as complex as mine doesn't mean that I get to shame everybody else because they, you know, if I say ask and you say axe, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a smarter person than you. But I 100% walked around believing that because I have more correct language than you, I am more smart and more articulate. And that's like very recently that like that was pointed out to me as a bias. Mm. And we kind of think that our language is correct and everyone else has an accent. You know, we kind of are all under that illusion or everyone else's language is less than or not as complex or not as um, beautiful or doesn't come from as smart a people or whatever the thing is. And so I'm still, I'm still digging, you know, illusions that I have about myself that, um, that are just biases. They're just biases there to, to make me feel like I'm special and ordered and controlled and, um, that I can, and and the reason that we undo these is so that we can have greater compassion and understanding of other people, including ourselves.
1: Yeah. My, my father-in-law, uh, Born and raised in Kentucky, he he once told me, not you know pretty early in my my wife and I's relationship, he he said something I'll never forget. He said, "You know, I've got a Kentucky accent." He goes, "Because I have a Kentucky accent, people assume my IQ is ten points lower than it actually is." Mm. And he goes, "If somebody comes along and talks with a British accent, we automatically assume their 10, their IQ is ten points higher than what it actually is," and and so our brains are trained to do that. Uh, and then the other thing, I wanted to put this up on the screen. Um, whoop, let me switch it here so the name's right. The I was re- listening to this podcast. I mentioned this to you off the air as well. Uh, Any time that we have a comfortable belief and it gets challenged, that comfortable belief isn't true, and we get challenged with new information that uh, should that we should, if we're going to be rational human beings, we should easily wrap our hands around and go like, oh, my belief's not true. This is, let me let me be closer to what reality is and adopt this new belief. Our brains don't want to do that. And if you notice anytime you've had to uh, let go of comfortable beliefs after hearing new true information, notice that your body and brain have to go through the grieving process. You know, there's that idea that first I deny it. Like there's no way that information can be true. Then there's, there's anger. Um, uh, what's the next one? I, I'm trying to think offhand. I don't have, let me see if I can get that back. Uh, bargaining, right? So bargaining is like, well, maybe like, maybe there's still my new, my old belief still is true in some magical way. Right. And and then depression, sadness of losing that belief. And then finally Acceptance. And what that tells me is that these beliefs are very important to us. It's just like losing a, a, a loved one or losing a tribe. The beliefs that are important to us are almost like living things that we love and care about and nourish and want, want to maintain. I want these beliefs to be part of me. And so just notice that uh, we go through this grieving process anytime that we have to let go of important beliefs. And when you see that it's that big of a deal, now you can understand why your brain does what it does and wants you to hold on to the the original thing. And maybe you now sense how much you have to overcome to be able to change your mind.
2: Yeah, and I hope this allows us to have not only more compassion for ourselves, like how could I have been duped by that confident person who I thought knew everything and, and. You know, all of this, it gives me more compassion for for myself and the things that I do, but it also gives me more compassion for others. I mean, the whole basis of this conversation is was Brian McLaren's book, Why Don't They Get It, which is this constant thing I hear about in everybody's family of I'm I'm going through something, I'm or I'm politically different than my family or religiously different from my family? And why can't they see it? Like, why can't they listen? And so once you kind of go through all of these biases and the work that our brains do that we don't know we're doing any of this, right? We don't know our brains are doing any of this, then we can kind of understand, oh, it's really hard for me to reach that person because their brain is working really, really hard for them to not see certain things. And the same is true for us too. And then hopefully it doesn't feel as painful like that That person is choosing not to love you. It may not have anything to do with love. They just may not know that their brains are working this hard to keep reality that is constructed in our brains going because that's what brains do.
1: I think it's why it's so important. I've I've spoken numerous times about the value of long-form conversation. Uh, it's also why it's important not to lose your cool uh, the best you can when you're in a conversation over difficult topics. Because if you really want to get at the truth, and, and our end goal, all of us, our end goal should be like, I want my belief, whatever my belief is, I'm willing to change it. I want my beliefs to be more true tomorrow than they are today. And, and so I have to be willing to engage folks, uh, venues, ideas that are in disagreement with me. And the most likely chance I have of finding more truth today that leads me to a more accurate representation of reality tomorrow is that I kindly and calmly, as much as possible, engage in long-form conversations and listen to places where there is disagreement um if we value those things
2: yeah. You can learn to love that process. Like you, like if we were talking about something political and I said an opinion and you were totally on the other side, mm. I would be excited because I would know, not only could we talk this out, but I would know that in this conversation, I'd be safe enough to change opinions or try a new argument, or you wouldn't think of me any less. Like I would know that this is such a safe place that my ego doesn't need to do any of that. And we could have a discussion and learn why we're seeing this totally differently and be excited about that journey and figuring that out. So you can learn to kind of love that journey of, um, checking a bias and seeing things from other points of view. It does get harder when your ego's involved. Like if it's a fight where me and my husband are seeing something totally different, well, like I have a little bit more ego and I have a little bit more, I have a little bit more to lose in that scenario of like, we should have done this or whatever. Um, but you can kind of fall in love with the process of of learning and, and really um, seeing things from outside what your brain limits and kind of learn to love looking at the world from such a wider lens than you used to because it's more beautiful that way. It's more complex, but more beautiful.
1: Yeah. And notice what you said, which is the people that we tend to be closest with are often the folks that our egos much more easily get kind of out of whack. And we tend to be defensive and protecting positions and finding hills to die on.
2: Mm -hmm. It can be harder. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. We got a donation while we were talking, which is just so appreciated and um, allows us to do this work. We have such amazing things coming down the pipeline. We have more work with Jana and Anthony, which is always um, such such good fun for all of us. We have some pretty big guests coming up. We have... um, we have a professor and kind of a leader of free will coming to talk to us, which is so great. And we have Nick Jankel, we have Andrew Newman. We ha- we're going to do some Christmas episodes on what Bill and I still love about Jesus. We have um, we had a listener who's really requested us to do the science of miracles and um, kind of go through this like what we just did, but with miracles. Um, And so we're still getting kind of requests from the audience for you should interview this person or let me introduce you to this person or what about this idea. And Bill and I take all of those seriously and try to um, make these episodes really helpful for anyone who's in this second half of life trying to figure life out and we really really appreciate the donations especially this time of year as we're trying to kind of uh gather our time and see how much time we can put into this podcast and we'd really love to be able to continue all these conversations so if this has been helpful for you i've had someone i've had someone say uh if you pass someone on the street who's playing music or doing something and they make you stop, then you owe them a dollar. And I, I still live by that principle today of like, if someone is doing something on the street that makes you stop, you owe them a dollar. And so if this podcast, if you've ever been listening and it makes you stop and think, and, or if it was last episode where Bill was crying and there were people crying with him, if it makes you stop, if it, um, affects your life and your day in any way, please support us so that we can can continue to do this work.
1: Yeah, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button. And uh, if you want to check out all the episodes, you can either go to the YouTube channel, uh, Mormon Discussion, uh, which is the umbrella site that everything is under, you can find the playlist Almost Awakened, or you can go to our website for the audio uh, versions of all of these programs at almostawakened.org. Thanks, everybody. And Britt, thanks for putting a great episode together.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, take
1: it
0: easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.